Welcome to the Raising Confident Teens podcast, where we teach life and leadership skills to teens and their parents. I'm your host, Rachel, and my co-host for this episode is Jenna. How's your week been, Jenna? Good. You still happy to be back in school? Yeah, I like it way better than online. (laughs) All right. We have a special guest with us today, Dr. Eddie O'Connor. He's going to be chatting with us about how to overcome obstacles and how to get past the fear of failure and perfectionism. Dr. O'Connor is a professional speaker and both clinical and sports psychologist specializing in removing barriers to peak performance. He is a fellow and certified mental performance consultant through the Association for Applied Sports Psychology and member of the United States Olympic Committee Sports Psychology Registry. Dr. Eddie has worked with youth, high school, collegiate, national, and international, junior Olympic, and professional athletes and coaches, as well as performing artists and musicians. Dr. Eddie is frequently sought after by media, appearing regularly on Fox News and Grand Rapids, a featured guest on Sirius XM's Dr. Radio, and quoted in ESPN.com, NBA.com, Los Angeles Times, Runner's World, nymag.com and cnn.com. Welcome, Dr. Eddie. We're so glad to have you on with us today. Thanks. I'm super excited to be here and to be able to share some knowledge to help the kids out. Thank you. I appreciate it. So can you tell us a little bit about how you got into studying performance? Yeah. So I was, I knew I wanted, I'm one of the rare people. I wanted psychology right from the beginning. So I think I was in uh high school and I was reading Freud for fun analysis of dreams in my bunk bed, um, in the Bronx. And, uh, I just always knew I was fascinated by psychology and behavior and I always enjoyed sports. I was honestly not very good, but, uh, I played baseball in a little league and I ran track in high school, which I absolutely loved. And then all of a sudden the last class I took in, in college was this class called sports psychology. And I'm like, what is this? And I immediately fell in love with it. I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't know that there was a whole mental game for performance. Because at this point, a couple decades ago, you know, psychology was all about disorders and psychopathology and solving problems, which I was happy to do and, and, and passionate about. But then this whole idea that, you know, there's actually a psychology to excellence was really, really fascinating. So I immediately knew after that one class, this is the direction I wanted to go. Um, so I did get my degree in clinical because I also knew that athletes were people too, and that they were going to struggle with things that, um, your average person's going to struggle with, but unique things within sports. So just as you had mentioned earlier, the idea of perfectionism, how do you handle failure? Um, performance anxiety is what I do a ton of. Uh, I did a lot of athlete injury and rehabilitation as well, because if you're an athlete, you're going to get hurt. Um, and so I specialized on my clinical work and the things that athletes would suffer from the most. So I was able to get them on both sides. If they're struggling, I could get them back to normal. And if they're normal, I could get them to excellent. So what if you hadn't have taken that class? <laughs> I would have a completely different life. It is amazing how one event, um, can shape your entire life or direction. And yeah. you never know when that's going to show up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We were talking about that earlier. Just one one event can pivot the whole direction of your life. And that's cool that you were willing to take that class. Cause so, so did you right away start doing performance stuff? 
Yeah, it actually changed the whole way I applied to graduate school. So it was just a class. And, you know, um, the idea of psychology, particularly in college, is it's almost like the elementary school of the field. There's not, you can't really do any counseling or anything afterwards. So I knew I was going to have to go to graduate school. But now that I knew that sports psychology was a thing, it completely changed my direction of what schools I wanted to apply to. Um, so I took some time off and re-researched all the places to go and then ended up going to a school in Chicago, a clinical program that had a subspecialty of, of sports psychology so I could get both done at, a, um, at the same time. So you specialize in helping people with improving their performance in not just sports, but all areas of their life. Right. Yeah, I was just jumping in and I'm excited because while it's called sports psychology, sports just a great metaphor for life. But why I immediately became so passionate about it was because this, this whole idea of being our best um, really extends to being our best in business as a father, as a, a partner in marriage, um, in health maintenance. Um, so as you had said earlier too, I'd expanded beyond athletes and I have um, actors and actresses, performing artists, musicians. Um, I've got colleagues that are working with police and fire and soldiers. So anybody who needs to perform under pressure, which I think is all of us, you know, can, uh, can apply these skills. So does every person that you've ever worked with have these mental barriers? Yes, because they're human. <laughs> right. If you, if you have doubt, if you have fear, um, if you don't, you actually have a, a much bigger problem. Uh, could you imagine going through this world and not being afraid? I mean, how, how quickly would you die? You know, we'd be walking into such dangerous situations. We had to go across the street and not look both ways. So it doesn't have to be you know, pathology again, but there is certainly absolutely a normal amount of fear, doubt, and even anxiety um, that is actually beneficial. And we have to learn how to relate to it differently in order to excel. It's not about getting rid of it. Is the main challenge our mindset? I think so. Um, mainly because we filter our entire life's experience. You might have heard the, the cliche, perception is reality. Well, that's actually kind of true. Like, However we perceive our world and what we think about ourselves and our situations is going to inform and influence how we feel and then how we act. And so if your mindset isn't in a place where you can relate to your thoughts and feelings in a way that are going to move your actions in a positive direction, then you end up being in a lot of trouble. The difference is, and where I like to really get into it, is that Common pop psychology is going to say, so therefore you have to be positive and think, uh, think positively and feel confident so that you can play well or do well in school or get good grades. And I've learned that that's actually not the case. I mean, could you imagine going to the Olympics and not being nervous? <laughs> that doesn't make sense. Right. You know, starting a new business. Like if you're going to go and take a test, you should be worried that you're going to fail. It's the very thing that actually motivates you to study. And we've all been around these people who are way too confident. What happens to them? Well, they get beat by lesser opponents or they don't do well because they're unprepared. So it's not about actually getting rid of these fears and these anxieties and these quote unquote problems. They're not problems. The problem is that we're trying to control it. So when we're, we're struggling to fight our anxiety, we're not studying for the test. When we're trying to be more confident at the plate, we're not watching the pitch. So it's really a matter of focus and how we relate to these uncomfortable feelings. So could you give us a tip? Like I, I've heard, this is one I've heard. Um, 
nervousness brings about the same response in our bodies as excitement. So you just tell yourself you're excited and it will shift your mindset. Is that true? I agree with that about halfway. And, and here's where I'll, I'll tell you the part that I agree with. Scientifically, that's absolutely true. There is no physiological difference, assuming you like roller coasters, about being on a roller coaster and being in front of a bear. The only difference is what you, how you interpret those sensations. One, like you'd said, is of excitement because you know you're safe. And the other one is terror and can be quite traumatic because there's a fear of death. So the physiological experiences are the same, but how am I interpreting it? Now the challenge though is, I mean, you could tell me I'm standing in front of a bear to say that I'm safe and take a deep breath, but that's not gonna do a, a darn thing to help me calm down. <laughs> right. So the misinformation is then when we tell a, a high school athlete to just take a deep breath and oh, but you're good and, and think that you're gonna win and do all these positive thoughts because it actually then challenges the brain to lie to it yourself. Like there's no way, if, I, if I'm doing a workshop with at a tournament and there are 12 teams and I'm telling everybody to believe they can win, 11 of those teams are gonna be really <laughs> mad at me and think I'm terrible. Right. One team's gonna think I was brilliant and it worked. But does it work that way? Absolutely not. So what do you so, tell yourself? Well, to finish you know, the question to your answer, the idea there is to kind of say, well, what are these sensations about? So the, the tip, my, my favorite one, is that we have to really take this nervousness and this physiological arousal in particular and use it like a fire alarm. Fire alarms go off and they often will signal a fire. But let me ask you, how many fire alarms have you been in and heard in your life that wasn't a fire? A lot. Most. And for me, thank God, all of them. Right. Every single fire alarm I've ever been a part of has either been a drill at school or when I was in college, some, some fraternity pulled the alarm six times or I've burned bacon and I know the fire alarm goes off um, every year. My batteries die and, and that, that beeps. So there's, there's always another reason. So if, an, if a fire alarm went off in your place right now and I told you, oh, you know what? It's probably nothing. You should just ignore it. Would you? You shouldn't. Right. Right, of course not. You, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't be, and, and if you did, I think we, we, would, we wouldn't be able to really concentrate on this podcast and our conversation. Right. And so that's what a lot of that positive thinking and just tell yourself it's okay doesn't work. So well, what do we do? Because it could be a fire, it could not. Well, that's exactly it. If we start to take our doubt, our fear, our negative thoughts, our physiological arousal, that intensity, and we hold it lightly. And what I mean by that is you check it out like it's a fire alarm. Hey, hey something could be going on <clears throat> because I could fail the test. I could make a mistake. I could, you know, there could be some danger. So you lean into it and you say, what does this have to offer me? This is the conversation you have with yourself. What is this trying to tell me? Now, here's the amazing thing. How many times have you worried about something that never happens? A lot. How many tests have you been afraid that you were going to fail that you either passed or did very well? A lot. How many times you worry about your kids and that they're going to be unsafe, but they're completely fine? Right. So two things here. One is our mind tells us what worries the most about the things we care the most about. That's what it actually means, number one. Notice that. If you told me all your worst fears, I would be able to just repeat back to you the same things and tell you these are the things that you love the most. Right. Because the more we care about it, the more it could hurt us. 
So for those that are listening in about dating, that's why when you give your power to a boyfriend or a girlfriend, they, you're giving them the power in, in love, but you're giving them the power to hurt you. Right. Yeah. Right. That's not the point. Yeah. But when you become more sensitive and worried about what she's going to say, is he going to like this outfit, etc., all that worry is just a reflection of, whoa, I really like this person. Doesn't mean that you have to believe all of it. So going back to the fire alarm, what you have to do is tune into it and listen and then assess objectively what's going on. So if I see bacon burning on my stove, then I can say, oh, okay, the fire alarm is just a signal of something else. I'll take care of that. It doesn't mean that every time the fire alarm goes off, that go bolting out of the room. If I did that, you know how many fire drills in school? I'd be in detention all the time. <laughs> I'd get in trouble at the, at, you know, uh, like it'd just be so inefficient. And if your alarm went off and, you know, both of us just took off the headphones, we'd ruin your podcast. Right. So, but that's what we do with our fear and anxiety. If it goes off in our head, we tend to just believe it right away because it feels scary. It, something must be wrong. When most of the time, it's just an alarm and we have to check it out. So you always want to lean into it. And then you make one of two decisions. If there is something to do, then take action and, and do it. So if I don't want to fail, well, then let me go study. If I don't want to uh, do poorly in the competition, let me prepare. If I don't want to eventually burn the house down, let me take the bacon off of the stove. But if it's just something that is, let's say, the night before the test, and I'm scared about failing, then I'm like, well, of course, I care about this test, so that's why I'm nervous, but I have studied all week. I do need a good night's sleep in order to do well. There's really nothing for me to do. So then, if it's you and me and there's a fire alarm going on, we can't get rid of that thought, so maybe you and I are just yelling over the fire alarm to have the podcast. It'd be nice if we shut off the alarm so you and I could have a good conversation, but you hear me talking louder, we could actually get it done. We just have to do it harder and take more effort. And that's the key. It's not a matter of getting the alarm to stop. It's a matter of realizing that it's safe, just letting it go into the background and doubling up on your focus and attention to what's most important now. So that that reminds me of something I read on or I saw on one of your videos. You said, get comfortable being uncomfortable. That's what you're talking about. Yeah. In a way, it's actually one of the cliches that I'm going to write about that that I like, but don't like, because if you actually end up getting comfortable, well, then you're not uncomfortable anymore. <laughs> so that's true. So I do have an issue with it because people like to throw it around, but, but the idea with it and maybe a better way to rephrase it would be become, be, be willing, be willing. Like if you want to be excellent, you want to be in the top 5%. That means you have to do what 95% of other people either can't or won't. It's not natural. And we're in a society where, you know, we're giving away a lot of participation medals and, and everybody's great and everybody's good and, and there's a lot of positive reinforcement. And, and, and that's fine, but we are losing the respect for excellence. We are not all entitled to win just because we worked hard. Right. And, that's, and we're not bad if we lose, we have to, but we have to have a balance here and really respect so this idea of learning to be uncomfortable, learning to be willing to be uncomfortable, is just really a matter of appreciating the hard work that it takes. I've worked with so many athletes, it's funny, almost all of them will tell me that they work hard. And I'm like, well, could you work harder? And they could kind of look at me like they don't really want to do that. I'm like, but if you want to win a championship, if you want to be in top of your class, that's the way the world works. 
maybe it's more getting out of your comfort zone, being willing to get out of your comfort zone. The necessity to get out of that comfort zone. Because if you stay in the comfort zone, you plateau. That goes against everything uh, Americans strive for. (laughs) It goes against our humanity. That's inviting pain into our life. Who wants to be in pain? Who wants to be tired? That doesn't feel good. So can you sustain that? Always pushing yourself constantly? You can. And here's where I work with my performers in the words that they choose. If you don't have acceptance, if you are pushing yourself, like grinding it through, if you're coping, then there's an unconscious message that you don't really like what you're doing. Now, if you change that and you say, let's say you're, you're going to the gym and you're exercising a lot and you're building a big sweat and your, your muscles are burning and you're interpreting all of that pain as a valuable experience to get you towards your goals, it won't bother you. You'll hurt, but you won't suffer. So I know you had mentioned you have got five kids. I've got four of my own. And I remember that we had twins um, as, as the second uh, birthings. So I had three kids under the age of two. And I don't remember the first six months of the kids being born, <laughs> of the twins being born. But what I do remember was that I was exhausted because we had this schedule of, okay, you know, midnight feeding, pick up one kid while she nursed. I changed the diaper, rotate, flip. All right, we do this every couple of hours. And so normally, if I don't get my eight hours sleep, I'm kind of crabby. Like, you know, if I don't sleep well tonight, I'm not going to, I'm going to feel it tomorrow and complain. But I, I was sleep exhausted for months. But because I was taking care of my new babies, I wasn't suffering at all. My mood was good. I mean, I was tired. I probably wasn't functioning the best because you can't be sleep deprived and you just can't cheat it. But as far as my suffering, absolutely not. So the pain has to have meaning. Right. And that still will never make it fun and it'll never make it easy, but then you're not pushing. That's the willingness that you develop. And you have to recommit to this over and over again. So if you're in a sport, you know, you have to recommit sometimes every season. Like, you know, do I want to do this again? Do I want to go through training camp? Sometimes you have to do it every workout. And it's that intentional choice to engage the difficulty that leads to excellence. So... It's not all mental, though. Like, if you're trying to do something, there has to be some level of skill there, right? I mean, just just wanting to be good at something and working hard at it is not going to... Well, kind of like what you said about the participatory medals. Just because you want to participate in something doesn't mean you're going to succeed. Or, or are you only competing against yourself? Well, there's about three different tangents I could go on in that question there. It <laughs> was a long question. <laughs> well, yeah, and you're unpacking a couple of different things. So um, I could go in a lot of directions, but let me, let me ask you to rephrase it so I can answer you maybe in the best way of, of what, you're, what you're wondering about. Uh, yeah, it just came to me, so I don't know. Um, <laughs> like, you know, we, we talk about these guys are peak performers. Yes. But to be a peak performer in your field... Is it more skill? Is it a combination of skill and determination and drive and doing the work? Or the people that are peak performers, are they normally the ones that don't have the greatest skill, but they're just very determined and committed and want the thing bad enough? 
So let me rephrase one of your words and see if I'm accurate. When you say skill, do you mean talent? Yes, talent. Okay. Um, fantastic book called Peak, the, and it's by Anders Ericsson. And he is the expert on experts, 30 years of research. And he has scientifically proven that there's really no such thing as talent, which is amazing because when I look around, I see a lot of talented people. But what the book is about is this concept called deliberate practice. So now granted, a seven foot player is gonna have an advantage over a five foot player in basketball. But I know a lot of seven foot people that can't play a lick. And there's a guy named Muggsy Bogues, I think he was five, some, five and a little bit, um, was in the NBA for the Charlotte Hornets. So there's not anything automatic about height that would translate into that. So the idea with deliberate practice invites all the things that you were talking about. You absolutely need the desire and you need the thousands of hours of dedicated concentration and focus to develop those skills. So there might be some biological advantages, but they are far outweighed by how does a person, a, say a professional tennis player, well, how early did she start? How often did she practice? How engaged in the practice was she? I promise you that every single number one tennis player on, on a high school team or college team will tell you the endless hours of practice, and many of them not fun. The drills over and over again, as we said earlier, simply because they knew it, it was gonna make them better. Every musician will, will, will drill the chords and certain movements over and over and over again, hundreds of times, thousands of times for perfection. Not fun, but valuable training to develop the skills. They all have the skills. But is it talent? Were they just born with it? Well, the research finds that you could even find, you know, train perfect pitch if you start early enough and do it the right way. Something that they used to believe was that you were either born with it or not in singing. Puts a lot of pressure on us, doesn't it? We're responsible for our outcomes. Yeah. Now we got to do it. <laughs> well, that's well, true. That's the other thing. You, you don't have to. Right. Because it's so hard. You get to pick. <laughs> yes. And you have to. Like, if we go through and think I should be great at everything, you're setting yourself up for such disappointment. I'm talking to the perfectionists out there. Right. It's just what you choose. What you choose to focus on. I, I, I heard somewhere, is it 10,000 hours? If you do anything for 10,000 hours, what's the rest of the statement, Keith? <laughs> well, I'm going to just squash it there because it turns out that's not true. Really? Yes. So it was made really popular because everybody likes rules and to compartmentalize things. But Anders Ericsson, the guy on expertise, had said that that study that uh, the 10,000 hour rule was quoted from was actually misinterpreted. Um, because some people, uh, well, let me give you an example. If you go a number of years ago, um, the, the time to run, uh, to win Olympic gold um, in the marathon would be X. I don't have it off the top of my head. But I do know that now 30 years later, everybody else is a lot faster and that that time no longer qualifies you to run in Boston. Like the, the, as we get older as a society, as, as our um, skills develop, I mean, everybody in this generation is bigger, stronger, faster than a couple generations ago. So the idea of an expertise is that as we get more and more information, it's going to take longer to, to, to go ahead and do. Now, 10,000 hours, um, depending on the field, if it's a relatively new field, maybe you could become the expert in that field. But if it's a field that's been super well-developed, you, know, you may need a lot more than 10,000 hours. And then 
It's more so on top of that, even the quality of the hours. Right, how well you paid attention. <laughs> right. I mean, you've seen people at practice. We all have if you, if you look around. Some people aren't engaged. And that's not the same quality hour as somebody who's listening to everything that the teacher or coach would say and that is co- totally engaged in drilling their movements. Right. So there's a lot of factors that go into it. And, and just simply put, there's nothing to guarantee the 10,000 hours. The results, rather, from the 10,000 hours. So what would be your best advice? If you could give a young person advice, this is the only piece of advice you're going to be allowed to give them to set them up for success uh, in whatever they do, whatever field they choose. What would be what would be your advice from what you've learned in all this studying about performance? Yeah, well, well I will say, what I would say is to, to play the last 25 minutes that we've been talking back over again. <laughs> like just, just do it on an endless repeat because I was, I was absolutely sure to give you what I thought was most important first. Right. Um, so that would be number one. Number two would be give yourself time to practice this. Because I I do feel like sometimes people think that psychology is like, oh, okay, I just got to get it in my head and now I know it and let me move on. But we don't learn anything that way. We have to practice it, play with it, do it wrong, do it in a new context. You know, the process of learning takes time. And please understand that your mindset, your emotional control are things that can be practiced. And if you want to excel in something, must be practiced. But because we're constantly swimming in our thoughts and our feelings, we kind of just take it for granted. And people tell us, oh, just calm down. Well, do I know how to calm down? Have I practiced calming down under stress? You know, so a lot of the time, I think we kind of just assume that we should just be able to change our thoughts and that we should be able to just relax our bodies. And that's just a, a, a false belief. And when coaches or teachers or parents demand that of of our kids, that they just get it together without any type of training or practice, it's simply unfair. And if you want to excel, it's nothing but adversity in front of you, particularly in competition. So dropping that entitlement and then prioritizing your ability to focus. So I I define mental toughness as either the learned or natural ability to be better and more consistent than your opponents in remaining determined, focused, confident, and in control under pressure. And if you think about all the skills that might go into to those things, um, and you give yourself time to develop it, and you do it in practice, not expecting it to show up in competition unless you're doing it every day in practice, and you remain engaged. So the nice wrap-up that I was, if I was going to give you one quick tip, it would be that if you want to win, you have to focus on what's important now. W-I-N. If you want to win, focus on what's important now. Get completely engaged in what you're doing as you're doing it. Be sure that your head is where your feet is at. Because of all the mental skills that I teach, I honestly believe that focus is the most critical one. Yeah, that that's that's great advice for not just teenagers, but anybody. Like, what's the next best thing I should be focusing on? Because I tend to get distracted easily. (laughs) It's not you. It's everybody. The mind is built to wander. 
And it's that, that frustration that we keep criticizing ourselves because we can't focus. Well, am I welcome to the human race? Do you think it's worse nowadays with so many distractions though? I don't know. I think the human brain is, is designed like this. And I think the content of what we think about um, is maybe more. I think um, we have some behavioral things. Like if we've got the phone, for example, you know, 20 years ago, we didn't have a phone in our pocket vibrating every time. Right. Um, but as far as the worries of, can I take care of my family? You know, am I doing okay on my job? Am I going to pass the test? You know, those types of things, as long as we've cared, we've had intrusive thoughts, as we had said earlier, about what could go wrong. So, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's worse. Maybe it's not. Either way, we're not going to we're not going to change. We shouldn't it. have the expect. Yeah, it's not changing. So yeah. you got to deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> so so realize when you have these thoughts, it's not you. It's everybody that has those thoughts, and just learn to filter them out and focus. Nope, I'm going to argue with you. Not filter them. That no, because if you start fighting with your thoughts, then you're not playing tennis. Like if if you were nervous on this podcast right now and you were dealing with all of your anxiety, you wouldn't be able to listen to what I'm saying. Right. You wouldn't have a right. So what you have to do is remember that you love your podcast. Right. And you, any feelings that are coming up, you remind yourself it's because I care. And then you say, what's important now? And the answer would be what I'm saying. <laughs> Listen to your guests. Right. Or ask the next question. Right. And I ask myself this question when, what's important now, at least 10 times a day every day. Because as soon as I start to feel overwhelmed, as the context changes, there's only one answer, minute by minute. So this is a fantastic skill that if you're in the middle of math class and somebody's passing you a note and you're worried about the test and you, you're thinking about what you're going to have for dinner, oh, oh, what's important now? Well, what the teacher is saying. And when you're at practice and you're worried about if I'm going to make the starting team and I don't want to make a mistake because I'm going to look silly and I don't want to disappoint my coaches, um, they're going to be mad at me. And then I think, oh, wait, 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 what's important now? Oh, you hit the ball. Right. There's always an answer if you ask that question that will guide all of your attention and focus into something that you can do right here, right now. And that will always be the right answer. That's good stuff. I think I'll have to write that on my notebook. What's important now? <laughs> yeah. On your notebook, on your bathroom wall <laughs> or mirror. Or like uh, Paint it on the wall. Yeah. Yeah. I am very easily distracted. So that's, that's great advice. Is there anything else you would like to add? Um, I could talk for hours, <laughs> but my fear would only be that I'd hate to dilute what I've already given. Right. Um, and and my, you know, what I think you did a really nice job of illustrating as you're listening to this is that, again, this can sound really interesting, but you're going to spend a long time practicing it. And I would love, again, the perfectionists, because um, we really didn't get to talk about perfection or mistakes, but this is a big deal here. You have to let yourself make mistakes. Now, as perfectionists too, like, you know, my perfectionist, and I'm a recovering one myself, and we kind of wear that on our sleeve, like, oh, nobody's harder on me than I am. Like, that's a badge of, of, of courage or something. And it's like, wow, that's terrible. That's <laughs> just so unfortunate. Because what's, we've learned that, like, success is about being hard on ourselves. Well, the research finds that, no, it actually just makes us depressed and, and, and have more performance anxiety. So we can strive for excellence. But by allowing mistakes, which freaks perfectionists out, because that, that's, that's unacceptable to make a mistake. 
Well, is it? Or is it absolutely necessary? Well, I know it's necessary, but uh, you know, I don't want to do it. <laughs> well, then you don't want to learn. Because I don't know anybody that learned how to ride a bike without falling. That, did, that learned how to uh, swim without swallowing some water. I mean, you didn't, you, didn't re- you didn't read a book to learn how to walk. You didn't watch your parents for a year or two years and then just pop up and start walking. Experience is our teacher. And somewhere after kindergarten, we accept everything from babies. They can draw a bunch of scribbles and as parents, we're going to throw that stuff up on their refrigerator and tell them they were the next Picasso. But somewhere around kindergarten, evaluations come in. And kids who grow into adults learn that mistakes get a red mark. And we get evaluated and we need A's. And then people who are getting the wins and really talented are getting all the attention and the scholarships. And they're the ones that they highlight on ESPN. And all of a sudden, bosses aren't so tolerant of mistakes. We punish mistakes all the time. And that's terrible in school and in youth sports to not have an environment that fosters the learning and actually embraces the mistakes as a absolute necessary process. Because how else are you supposed to figure it out? Yeah, that's good. Because, you know, every uh, thinking about in my own life, every big mistake I ever had was a huge learning point in my life. (laughs) Well, you're better than most because I know a lot of people that will stuff it away, not pay attention to it, say, I'll just do better next time because it's too painful to look at and then repeat it. The the idea of of humbling yourself to look at your mistake, honestly, look, I'll I'll (laughs) I'll tell you an embarrassing story because, you know, we're, we're all friends here. So... I was getting, at the place that I had worked, I would get a great review at the end of every year. You, know, you get a good review, you get a raise, you're doing great, Eddie, et cetera, et cetera. And being the performance excellence guy, I was like, you know, I don't know that this is really helpful in helping me grow. I was like, I really want some feedback on where I could be better. And they're like, oh no, five out of five stars, you're doing great. And I'm like, okay. Well, apparently my vice president had taken me, had taken it to heart because the next year I sit down for the review and he gives me lots of great remarks. And then he tells me some things I could improve on. And I just about flipped out. I went home and I was like, are you kidding me? Can you believe he said this and that I got to do that? And I was like, what the heck is the matter with me? <laughs> I loved the positive feedback. And here I finally get what I, I, I asked for. And I, I didn't have the, my own mental toughness or the humility or whatever it was to take the feedback. And that was a missed opportunity. Like I had to calm myself down for three weeks to, to honestly, before I could look at it and say, okay, what do I need to do? Now, thank God that was a while ago and I'm much better now. I'm much more humble, but I still don't like to hear it. But I've learned that I not only need to hear it, but I need to seek it out because perfection is impossible, but excellence is within my grasp. And it's only if I take a mistake, a new mistake every day, Don't make the same mistake over and over again. That's a problem. But make a new mistake every day because you're pushing the limits. You're testing it out. You're figuring out what's not working. And you will grow. And if you want to be what I like to call the perfect perfectionist, copyrighted, (laughs) it's the person who strives for excellence and has this relationship where you can still hate the mistakes and not like them, but you must engage them and invite them in. Look, when you make a mistake, it's not a value experience. You are more 
than your grades, you're more than your body, you're more than what people think about you, you're more than your batting average, you're more than the amount of money you make, the job that you get, the college you go to. We identify way too much with these other things and that's when mistakes become threatening because if I lose, then I suck or I'm no good or I'm bad. Yeah. Your identity has to be outside of your performance and when you can get it outside of that and then your performance is just something that you're doing, Mistakes become safer, and then you get much closer to that perfection you're striving for. Yeah, that's cool. I, I that, that that's a lot easier said than done, especially for for a teenager when they feel so much they need they need approval and. <laughs> yeah, and that and that's why I had said going back, and I appreciate you letting me do all these monologues, but but when we go back. You know, my greatest plea to everybody is to have some compassion for yourself and give yourself time. Like you didn't create this perfectionistic mind or this high achievement orientation where we've got to do it. The culture that we're in shows us that, you know, tells us that over and over again. And there's nothing that we can do about the culture except to kind of step outside of it and realize that it's it's a culture. It's not a reality. Going back to our first point, you know, our perception is our reality. So if you choose to buy into this, it can crush you. But my hope is that with a lot of things that I've said here, it's not a way to work the system. But my hope is to get you out of the culture, out of the perfectionism, out of the, the win-at-all-cost mentality, the out of I am what I achieve and what I do. And realize that there's a different way to engage particularly the fear and the worry and the pain that I'm going through. That reminds me of a story I heard about uh, Sarah, the, the lady that created Spanx. She said every day at the dinner table, her dad would ask them, where, where did you fail at today? And that's what they discussed because he didn't want to know their successes. He wanted to know their failures and, and it, was, it, it became acceptable to fail. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. And you see, look at you. You're laughing as you say it. That sounds ridiculous, right? Right. But I'm telling you, everybody that succeeded has learned that lesson. Right. And that's what that's what scares or humbles me. You fail me. your way to success. Absolutely. That's right. beautiful. All right. Now, if you correct it, again, you can't just keep failing. Yes. You know, there's 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 more to it, but it certainly is a part of the process. <laughs> Well, I just want to thank you so much for sharing with us today. Where can our listeners find you? Yeah, the best place is the hub at uh, DrEddieOConnor.com. And you'll see links there for everything to my YouTube channel, to my social media. Um, there's a link to, I've got a, a course called The Psychology Performance, How to Be the Be Your Best in Life. There's a link to that. Um, and then I've just started a membership um, so that we can work year-round together as part of a community. And there's a link to my Success Stories membership on that website. Um, and so again, it's DrEddieOConnor.com. Awesome. Oh, and if you join right now too, uh, if you sign up, I've got a free video. Um, what do you do when positive thinking doesn't work? So if you uh, sign up on the website now, um, you'll get a, an immediate link to that, that video. It's, it's really one of my favorites. Yeah, you, had, you have a ton of great videos on your YouTube too. Thank I, you. I watched some of them. Hope you enjoyed today's podcast. It would be great if you could leave a review on iTunes to help increase our visibility. We also have more content available at our website, RaisingConfidentTeens.com, and our free private Facebook group for parents at Raising Confident Teens Community. Hope you have a great week. <laughs>